We're all here this morning. Are you ready to dive in and swim in the word a little bit? All right. I like the woohoo. Woohoos are good. Um, As uh, Laura mentioned, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the team here. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, these guys would love to um, hand you one. And let me just kind of give you a little backdrop of of where we've been and, and what we're doing. I will add to what Laura stated that, that though we just gave you a big um, kind of overview of what the women are doing, men, you are not exempt. There are a ton of men's ministries uh, and men's Bible studies that we have available in addition to other community groups. I'll tell you right now, I think our, our men's breakfast, which meets the second and fourth Sunday of every month is probably stronger than it ever has been. Mike has been leading that. You get good food. You get to get into the word. We have several men's groups throughout the week. All of that stuff is on our app as well as uh, on the website. So if you don't have the app yet, download that. Fill out uh, the form in there so you can get the newsletter. If you are new, in the back pocket there, there's a little kind of bulletin. You take that uh, to the info booth out over here. We got a gift for you. We want to bless you and get you plugged in. So make sure that you just kind of are doing what you can to be aware uh, of what's happening at our church because God has been so gracious to us that there's just so much going on. It's incredibly difficult to communicate everything uh, that we're doing. <clears throat> now, last week we uh, were in Haggai and we finished that book. And one of the takeaways in Haggai would be that we would be about building the kingdom. Multiple times in that book, it is said to us as well as to God's people that we would do the work, that we would work. Uh, and one of those verses that I gave us in one of those messages was out of Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. This is a young Ephesian church with a young pastor. And in that particular church, Paul is trying to equip Timothy to continue to build up the church, that the church would be a growing thriving church grounded in God's word. And one of the things he tells Timothy, and I'm sure you're all aware of this verse, as I've mentioned it several times, as as well as you've probably heard it in other places, that Paul tells Timothy that he's got to preach the word. That's his instruction. You have to preach the word. He then goes on to tell Timothy that he has to be ready when he's preaching the word in season and out of season. That's just another way of saying you always need to be ready to defend your faith, to teach your faith, to share your faith. He then adds to that particular text in that book that in the end, there's going to come a time where people will not endure with, they won't put up with, they won't want to handle sound teaching and that they'll have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers that tickle their ears to suit their own passions He literally tells Timothy that people will turn away from listening to the truth. And instead of listening to the truth, they'll wander into silly myths. But then he emphasizes to Timothy, but for you, Timothy, for you, you need to be sober-minded. That's just a fancy way of saying, keep your head in the game. The pressure is on. You're down by one. The time is ticking down. The end is coming. Keep your head in the game, Timothy, And then he tells him to endure suffering and to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. Uh, That word work is emphasized in Timothy. But he tells us to do the work of, he tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And that's what I want to talk about this morning 
for a few reasons. One, it ties into Haggai, a big picture of what we should be working towards in building the kingdom. But it also gives us an opportunity to emphasize that you and I should be about the business of growing the kingdom. And if there is any time that could be better than this, I don't think there is. I think this is the time to talk about it because Easter is coming. It cometh. There is an opportunity for us to invite people to a Sunday service where they normally would not come an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, an opportunity for you and I to be in the community. And so here is the overall goal of what I'm hoping for us this morning, that you and myself would be ready, prepared, sober-minded, enduring to do the work of an evangelist. Now that is just to proclaim our faith. That's what that means, to share our faith. So here's what we're going to do in Acts chapter 6. We're going to talk about a gentleman that I like to call Big Phil, or also known as Philip the Evangelist, a man who obviously has come to faith, once was a Jewish man who then becomes a proclaimer of the faith. A few weeks ago, John Drollinger uh, and myself got to go to a conference, and uh, as, as, uh, it was funny that Amy mentioned that John was tall. If you've ever met his father, he's even taller He's like seven foot something. And I'm not kidding. He used to play for UCLA for John Wooden, uh, which is a great basketball coach. And I got to stay at his house. And uh, the whole time I walked through his house, I, I couldn't help but giggle because everything in the house is made for this very tall man. And I know I may seem tall on stage, but I can guarantee you I am not. Uh, and as I walked through his home, I couldn't help but laugh and to giggle because I literally felt like a hobbit walking through a home and sitting in his chairs. It was uh, great fun. <clears throat> While we were down there, there was a, a message. As some of you, I, I posted it on my Facebook, but there was a message preached by a man uh, by the name of Vadi Bachman. Vadi Bachman is an African-American man. He's written a book uh, called Fault Lines. It's a worthy read. Uh, but Vadi Bachman... <clears throat> As an African-American man, grew up in Watts, Los Angeles without a father. All those kind of stereotypical things we think of. African-American man, inner city in Los Angeles, no father, and uh, his single mother was a Buddhist. And as he was growing up, he was uh, listening to all of these different narratives that we've heard in culture uh, that, that has been preached to him as a minority, as an African-American male, what he needed to be liberated from all the ills of culture. Things like social reparations or lifting him up or giving him more opportunities to do well in life. That power from others would be shifted to himself as a minority that he then would do well. It was interesting to hear as he preached uh, that particular message, that the one thing that he realized after coming to salvation as a minority, as a man without a father, was simply this. He stated, I did not need to be pulled out of being poor. In fact, he said that he and his mom were po. They couldn't affo afford the O and the R. <laughs> he grew up without a father. He grew up in LA, all of these different things. He needed education. He was told he needed all this stuff. Well, now where he's at today, he actually leads a seminary in Africa, training other pastors 
to preach the gospel and to teach the word. That is who he is today. And in that particular message, he shared with the congregation, 3,500 to 4,000 pastors had the opportunity to hear this man state that he didn't need to be pulled out of being poor and he didn't need financial reparations. The only need he needed or had was to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. For myself, it was an emotional message because to a certain degree, though I will never probably have the voice of Avadi Bachman, I, I literally am the white version of Avadi Bachman. I literally grew up in a junkyard, poor. My parents both were heavy drug users. My father, an alcoholic, has spent several years in prison. And I can tell you clearly, as Vadi would say, and as Philip the Evangelist will tell us here in a moment, the only need that we have isn't to be pulled from a trailer park or to have more money or to have a better education or better politicians. The only thing we need is to be reconciled with Jesus Christ. The scripture would say, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world, but he loses his soul? Philip will preach these things. We'll see here four different points that I want to share this morning. The first one is that Philip was a man of good rapport. He was a man of good reputation. So if you would this morning, after that introduction, if you have the ability to do, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We will see here, just as Paul told Timothy... In those days, he says, they will acquire for themselves teachers who will tickle their fancies. Here in Acts 6.1, it starts with a similar declaration. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. If you skip the next verse for time, at the end of, sorry, the middle of chapter, uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Lord, that would be our hope that we, like these priests who once did not walk with you and now are, would be obedient to your faith. And you've given us a commandment, every single one of us, to go into the world and to proclaim. Would you encourage and strengthen us to do just that this morning? In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. Please have your seat. A few things I want you to see in regards to Philip. Well, let's just briefly speak for a moment the, the, the dynamic of what was happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is often called the book of Acts, but some have said it should actually be called the Acts of the Apostles because of the acts of which they have committed or they have done, their actions, their deeds. I think a much better title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit comes early on in Acts, falls upon many of the men in Acts, falls upon all of the believers in Acts, and the result through the preaching of the word is that the church continued to grow and to thrive. In fact, in several different places, it will tell us that 3,000 were added on one day, 5,000 added on another day, and that only included, for the most part, the men. Literally, you had within the book of Acts the first megachurch springing up in Jerusalem. Uh, Brad Beers and I were speaking this week that it was kind of interesting that in the book of Acts, most of the church met in a wealthy lady's house. Someone with money opened up their home and they began to grow and they began to increase. Now what was happening here in this particular passage is you had the Hellenist Jews, which were the Greek-speaking Jews. They didn't speak Hebrew, which created a division amongst the Hebrew Jews. And so in the distribution of the food, as the church had need and, and they were handing out the food, the minority group was being overlooked. And so an argument arose. And the pastors and the teachers were trying to take care of this. And they realized that the church was getting too big. And so they needed to start to bring some kind of form of organization to the church. It's inevitable when a church grows that it needs to have some organization. I know that's kind of a non-popular thing to say that, well, I don't like organized religion. But there has to be some organization to ensure that the people's needs are being met. And so we have what many theologians believe, the birth of two groups of leaders within the church, the elder group and the deacon group. The elders would be the pastors and the teachers, those who have a gifting to preach the gospel and to teach the word. The deacons, however, would have a heart of service. That's literally what deacon basically means. That word basically means the one who serves, a servant's heart. They're the servant of the servants. And we have both groups in our church. We have our elders. We have our deacons. The elders are to shepherd the congregation, care for the congregation, equip the congregation to do the work of the ministry, while the deacons are to care for the serving of widows, handling the tables, the tearing down and setting up of chairs, if you will the willingness to serve in the background. Now, what's interesting is the, the, the disciples choose these men, one of them being Stephen. If you remember, Stephen is the first martyr in Scripture, a man who proclaims greatly who Christ is, and he dies for his faith. But here we also see this man, his name is Philip. Now, what's interesting about Philip, though it's not mentioned here, it will be in other parts of our text. Philip is the only man in all of Scripture with the title evangelist. You won't find that title anywhere else. Now, there's a few things that are important in regards to this man being selected as a leader and for this man being someone who will eventually share his faith. First, notice it says that they selected him from among them. Right? The church should be in the business of equipping its people so that eventually its people at some point will rise in their equipping to the point of leadership from amongst the church. Right? It's kind of to the church's shame if we have to do a Vanderbloom in search or a ZipRecruiter search. Right? And those things do exist. It, it's happening. In, in fact, uh, I shared with you, I think last week, the, the great number of pastors who are falling away from the faith and are quitting their positions in ministry. I actually this week spoke with another gentleman who's part of pouring into pastors across the whole nation 
because there really isn't very many organizations that do that. And he stated to me that the numbers that I had mentioned to him may be low. Now, regardless, I know that statistics can be manipulated to say whatever you want, but the point being is that the church in America is in a point of crisis. The men are falling away from the faith. People are compromising the word. And so we are in this place where Paul has told Timothy that there will be people who will not <clears throat> endure sound teaching, but you need to continue steadfast. You need to be a person of integrity, selected amongst the church, that, that this idea of, of being known in the community and having a good reputation is a big deal to you. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A good name matters. A good reputation matters. Someone was telling me this week how beautiful it is that, that this particular congregation of believers is spread throughout all of the Tahoe Basin. You almost can't go anywhere without meeting one of those odd and kind of weird, joyful Sierra Bible Church folk. In fact, just the other day, my wife came to me and she said, can I encourage you? And to which I told my wife, always. And she said that she had taken our kids to one of their uh, music classes or singing classes, I think, voice lessons. And, and the person there said, hey, are you uh, friends with the Grants? The Grants attend our church. They oversee Foster the Sierras and, and do a wonderful job helping parents adopt children and foster children, and, and they're doing a wonderful job there. And my wife, of course, said, yes, I, I know the Grants. And then he said, do, so, so are you married to Pastor Jesse Richardson? Which is always kind of a loaded question for my wife in the community. <laughs> you never know what's going to come out. And she said, yes, I am. And this particular individual said, can you please tell him thank you for encouraging his congregation and his people to be faithful and to be into the community? And he said, because, because of the faith and because of the fact that your church was open over the last two years, I've been able to provide for myself and my family. Can you tell Jesse thank you? No, 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 no. <laughs> No, that, that's, a, that's a testament to you. It's a testament to you because you have been willing to keep these businesses alive and, and you have spread the good news of what it is to not be fearful, but to have a good reputation. I recently put my name out not too long ago to, to sit on the chief advisory board, not knowing totally what it was, but just wanting to build bridges between our church and our faith community and in the community. And and recently went through a whole simulation training with the, uh, with the police department, which I failed miserably on, by the way, and just only walked away with a tremendous amount of gratitude for what our community officers provide for our community as well as nationwide. I can honestly tell you the media has manipulated much of what our officers do for us. Of course, there are always some bad apples out there, but that's true of pastors as well as police. I'm thankful for what they do. May we be people of good reputation, full of the spirit and wise, having a beauty to the way in which we live. This was the kind of guy Philip was. Now, I want you to understand something here that I think is really important to point out. Philip, though he gets this title evangelist, is first a deacon. 
And I think this is important because in ministry, oftentimes, we don't look at service and service-oriented things as such a big deal. The behind-the-heat-scenes stuff. Often it's, it's looked as if the guy on stage is the one who has the power and the control, and that's what we want to do, and we want to be all about that fancy business. But the reality is, is to be an evangelist, to be a Christian, is to be a deacon-type person. This man has a servant's heart. He's willing to serve the widows. He's willing to serve the least of. He's just plain out willing to serve. And because of his heart of service and because the spirit is filled within him, he then becomes, in my second point, a man who uses every opportunity. If we're to share our faith, we should look at almost anything and everything and everywhere we go as an opportunity to share scripture and to share our faith. Turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, in a digital world, it is so good to hear the flipping of pages. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> 8. <laughs> Verse 1. This opportunity that we first see is characterized by two individuals, one proceeding and one in. Proceeding Acts chapter 8 is literally... The account of Stephen being stoned to death for his faith. On the heels of this first martyr dying while preaching the gospel. You remember the heavens are opened up for Stephen. He sees Christ as he's passing from this life to the next. And after Stephen's death in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says that Saul approved of his execution. Now we're introduced to this man. Saul who will later become Paul. And it says here, there arose on that day, there's that word again, there'll be a day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, where the megachurch is. And because of this great persecution, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging literally means to cause havoc or to destroy or to ruin. In fact, that word comes from a root word that is used to describe the result of what happens when you wound a wild boar. That it loses all sense, loses all sanity. This is the likes of Paul. He has lost his mind He's not doing what Paul said to Timothy. Keep your head in the game. He's lost it. And literally it tells us as he's ravaging the church and causing havoc, he's entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You've got to like that. Regardless of the persecution, there is still a continual proclamation of God's word. Again, Verse 5, Philip went. It's that echo of those words of go. And he goes down to where? The city of Samaria. And he proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs he did, for unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, came out of many of them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. 
Now, this is just how God works. It's quite amazing and yet disturbing at the same time. Right? There is a megachurch in Jerusalem. Thousands are coming to faith in Jerusalem. It would be easy for the pastors and the leaders to say to themselves, we are building a kingdom in Jerusalem. God knows how people think. They begin to get comfortable. They begin to get excited. Look at all the people who are being saved. Look at how all the people are being discipled. Men are being raised up and they're maturing and they're coming to know Jesus. And so Jesus has given them a commandment in Matthew 28 to not just stay in Jerusalem. So what is this commandment? Go into the world. Go to Samaria. Go to Judea. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they're not doing that. So God sends a vessel of destruction through Saul to ravage the church, to scatter the church, that the church will then go about the mission of God. And this man, Philip, is one of those men. And as he goes, he's not paralyzed by fear. He's not shocked or dismayed by what is occurring to the church. He rather uses it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, why is this a big deal? You remember the Samaritans are considered to most of the Jews as half-breeds, lesser than. They are minorities. They are the trailer park kind of folk. But Philip knows the mission of God. And because he has the heart of an evangelist and he has the, the heart of a servant, he goes and he's unwilling to back down in preaching the word. He's unwilling to not be a part of what is considered the Missio Dei. You know what that is? The mission of God. And the mission of God is that he would be glorified. And one of the ways in which he is glorified is that his people would be missionaries in a world that is dark and helping other people come to saving faith. I like how Charles Spurgeon says it. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Jesus identifies himself as being sent more than 40 times in the gospel of John alone. And if you continue to follow the gospels, you will see that Jesus encourages his people to be sent as the Father sent him and as the Father sent the Holy Spirit. And the result in the city, it says, is what? Much joy. How many cities in our nation could have that label? We have the greatest little city on earth. We've got a base camp to a bigger life. But how many cities are marked by a city of those who dwell here are filled with eternal joy? Where Philip went, he preached, and he preached the word, and he didn't divide the word from the evangelism. Again, there is this picture that we sometimes carry of, of someone like Billy Graham who only preaches the gospel. But that isn't the way in which the Bible pins out evangelism. It has to be the gospel and it has to be the word. And another result is those people will be healed. Now, this great opportunity is contrasted by another opportunity that Philip uses in Acts chapter 8 verse 9. One character is the ravaging of Saul. Again, he well becomes saved, and he well become one of the greatest advocates of Christianity in the history of the world. But now we have another guy that Philip encounters in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. There was a man by the name of Simon. So if you're there, 
take a look, <clears throat> who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Okay, so here's a guy. In that day, magic wasn't like David Blaine. Okay, it wasn't like Chris Angel. It wasn't that kind of magic. If, if someone performed magic, it was seen as if he had power and that he was great and that he had some kind of spiritual anointing, quite possibly from a deity above. So he's practicing magic in his own name, proclaiming he's someone great. It says, all paid attention to him in verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. Did you catch it? That's a dangerous thing to label upon any human being. This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed with his magic. This man had a career, right? He wasn't just viral. He had a long-going career who was sharing this magic. People were amazed. They paid attention to him, the least to the greatest. And in verse 12, but you have to pay attention to those little verses in Scripture. Oftentimes it's that pivot point. There was a man, everyone thought he was great, some people thought he was God, but when they believed Philip, so Philip ended up in the scene, he's in Samaria. When Philip was in Samaria preaching, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed. This great magician who thought he was great, it says, he believed. You would read that and think to yourself, Simon must have been converted. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The amazer becomes the amazed. Look at verse 18. But when Simon saw the power of the spirit that was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered him money. Whoops saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And he goes on in verse 22 to tell him to repent. And on the heels of that, in verse 24, you can see Simon's response, pray for me that the Lord will not do what you have said, that it will not come upon me. <laughs> I got to get a different lid for this thing. I don't know if you can hear the whistling, but. And then I just spilled all over myself. Keeps getting better. Now, again, I want you to see a couple things here that are important. First of all, again, Philip isn't afraid of what? What's the takeaway, especially in regards to evangelism and sharing your faith? Don't be afraid of the weirdos. Don't be afraid of the odd ducks. I mean, this is literally who Simon is. I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of weird things that happen at times within this church. That happen even during the week. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, and maybe you're here this morning, and if this is you just want to let you know in advance, we're really glad you're here. Someone left a message at the church for Joe Casey that they were very upset. They said a few words, which I can't repeat here, and that they were going to curb stomp the entire congregation. First of all, good luck finding a curb. 
<laughs> Secondly, I hope you're exercising. That's a lot of stomping. No name left, no number left, just someone very upset. Several weeks back, someone left a, a bunch of little letters in, our, in all of the pastor's boxes, and they were laminated, and they were nice. And again, if that was you, we're thankful you're here. But I didn't understand what the message was. There was no email to call. There was no message to, to get back and have a conversation about what they meant and what our intentions were in regards to what they were writing. It, in fact, it didn't make a ton of sense. And Marley said to me as she's interning in the church, what do I do with it? And I said, just, just throw it away. Now, here's the reality. When the gospel is shared, when Christ is growing his church, you will see people like the lame and the broken healed. But as my good friend John Drawlinger shared with me, as I shared with him some of those things, he said, well, even the light attracts the bugs. Some of you have been here as individuals have literally interrupted the service with yelling and screaming and shouting and odd kind of things. You know, Jesus loves odd people. He wants to see odd people come to the Lord. But at the same time, as the light attracts the bugs, when the gospel goes out, the demons start crawling as well. To me, I'm encouraged by those kind of things. Because without them, I, 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 I would wonder, is God at work? Is God doing something? Because the kingdom of Satan is against the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Satan wants to continue to grow its darkness. And the only thing that keeps that darkness from growing is you and I sharing the word of God and sharing our faith that those individuals would be converted to Christianity. What I love about Philip is not only was he not afraid of the weirdos, he, he was willing to even disciple this guy. He walked with this guy. He talked with this guy. I mean, Simon's not a normal individual. <clears throat> and though it can be discouraging when we share our faith, there are people like Simon that inevitably will walk away from the faith. And we can't be discouraged by that. We can't let it crush us. I did youth ministry in this community for eight years. Many of those young kids I've poured into are still walking with the Lord. And in fact, one of them is on staff. And some have fallen away. And that's heartbreaking. And the reality is, is there are people who will come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. That is Simon's issue. In fact, many people believe and through some other historical writings that it's very possible Simon was the one who gave birth to the religion of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this belief that you have to have a secret knowledge to be saved. It is also believed that he continued after this to proclaim that he was God. You see, Simon's heart was not right. He came to Jesus not because of salvation. He came to Jesus not because of need and reconciliation. He came to Jesus because his real object of his faith was his power and his ego. He wanted to influence people. He wanted to have a big following. He wanted to be great. Beware of megachurch pastors. I mean, I don't think I even have to warn you all that much as many of these young or even older megachurch pastors are falling left and right in their faith to moral infidelity and all kinds of wrongdoings. I'm sure many of you have seen in the news the falling of Brian Houston with Hillsong. You know, literally within that church, they saved front, the front rows for those who were celebrities. When James clearly tells us, never say to the rich, you sit here while you take the poor and tell them to sit in the back. 
Beware of men who want to gather for themselves men that they would follow themselves. Leaders that should be raised from amongst us are men who don't say follow me, but follow Christ. And if you do follow me, follow me as I follow Christ. Why are so many men quitting the ministry? Why are so many young people walking away from the faith and diving into progressive Christianity? Because we've allowed, we've allowed our kids to be taught through 30-second TikToks and 150-character Twitters and few-second Instagram posts. Jesus would call us to drive ourselves deeper into Scripture, deeper into the gospel, into a deeper understanding that we would not be shallow, for shallow people are easily converted to the work of the enemy. He also had a wrong view of the supernatural. He thought he could pay for it, which is just silly. You can't pay for anything from God. It's grace. It's a free gift. That is the gospel. It's freely given to you, and you freely receive it. And he thought he could buy it. Why? To get a following. But one of his greatest downfalls He had a wrong view of sin. 8.24 in Acts says, don't let this happen to me. We don't come to faith because we're afraid of hell. Do I need to say that again? We do not come to faith because we're afraid of hell. We come to faith because we're in love with Christ who saved us from hell. He didn't have these things. And you can explain the gospel like Philip well, and you can disciple people like Philip did well. And the takeaway is don't be afraid of the weirdos. Don't be afraid to disciple. Don't be afraid to dig in, and don't be afraid if someone loses heart. It's Christ who brings the growth. So not only this, not only was Philip a a guy who was willing to use every opportunity, whether it was with the the dispersion of Saul or whether it was with this magician that is, is Simon. But he was a man who was also, this is my third point, fully yielded to the Spirit of God. Acts 8, chapter 26. Now, I wish I could read all of these verses. It's a, a big piece of text. One of the things this week that I wrestled with is, Palm Sunday is next week, and I, I ultimately, what I really wanted to do was to take this message and to break it up into two parts. But I thought, nah, you can handle it. We'll shove it all into one. A26 says, an angel came to Philip. Rise. Oh, there's another word that's similar to go. There's another word that, that, that we've got to be moving. We should be doing something. We should be working. He says, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem now to Gaza. This is a desert place. Again, why does the text say what it does? It's, it's helping us drive ourselves into this desert place. This is, this is a desolate place. This is a place with no life. Philip is an evangelist, but he's not a big crowd guy. He's in the middle of nowhere. Verse 27, he rose and he went. There it is. Go. And what happens to be there? An Ethiopian eunuch tells us a little bit more detail. He's actually a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This individual is the number two in command of all of Ethiopia in charge of all of the money in Ethiopia. And he's in Jerusalem. Why? 
because he wants to worship. He doesn't know what. He doesn't know what he's worshiping. It's probably false gods. Nonetheless, he's in the desert, and God has called Philip, and Philip has been obedient, yielded, fully yielded to the Spirit of God, and he goes down, and he finds this eunuch. And it says this in verse 28, and as he was returning, he was seated in his chariot, and he just happened to be reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is how evangelism works. He, God just, his spirit just happens. You got to go. Why do I got to go? He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't argue with the Lord. He's not saying, well, God, you know, I got some things to do. Spring's here. There's a lot of pine needles in the yard. I got, you know, you know school's got, you know, I got, you know, Lord. He doesn't do any of those things. He goes because this man has a scroll, which is a rare thing to have. Only probably the wealthiest of people would have it. He happens to have it. And as he's reading it, verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, again, why? Because Philip is yielded to God. He's obedient to God. And what does God say? Go. Oh, there's that word again. Go and join the chariot. I love verse 30. So Philip ran to him. He ran. He's zealous. I can only imagine what this Ethiopian would be thinking as he's riding his very expensive chariot, reading his expensive scroll to see this Jewish man in the middle of nowhere running to him. And the text tells us he jumps up into the chariot and asks this man, what are you reading? And do you understand it? How many of you felt like that as a Christian? What am I reading? All you got to do is get into Leviticus for a little while and start, what in the world? What am I reading? And he said, on the heels of do you understand it, on the heels of asking the question, the eunuch is honest and he says, I don't unless someone guides me. I can't understand it. And so Philip sat with him and he looked at the passage of scripture Oh, do you see it again? He's a man of the word. And he's a man of Christ. See, Philip was Bible-centered. And it tells us that he was reading, what he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And Philip then asked the question, who is he talking about, himself or someone else? How God-ordained is this moment? This passage is a proclamation and a prophecy of the work of Christ on the cross, that he would die for his people. And Philip then did this. He opened his mouth. I want you to see a going and an opening. We go and we open our mouths. And again, beginning with Scripture. Ah, there it is again. Scripture. He told him the good news of Jesus. Philip 
yielded to the Spirit of God, runs to this man who does not know God. The Spirit is involved in what this man has in his lap, and he opens up Scripture, and he's Bible-centered, and he's Jesus-centered. That is what every Christian should be identified as, Bible-centered, Jesus-centered, not culture-centered, not worried-centered, not fear-centered, not anxiety-centered, Bible-centered, Scripture-centered, Jesus-centered. And somewhere along this path, Philip is able to use his mouth and God is willing to open this man's eyes for the first time that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Messiah. And he simply asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to then be baptized? Basically, Philip's answer is, we just need some water and oh, there's some right here. We'll partake in communion in a few moments. Some of you have said to me over the years, I'm not worthy to take communion. And some of you have even told me I'm not worthy to be baptized. When you say those kind of things, you don't understand the gospel because the gospel teaches you, you will never be worthy to be baptized. And you will never be worthy to partake in communion. That is why Jesus on the cross took your wickedness and your unworthiness and gave you instead his righteousness. And so this man goes down into the water and he's baptized and he comes up and here's this word which we've seen again just as if in the city he was rejoicing. What's really crazy if you look at this verse, which is, again, it's just quite interesting. This must have been why Simon was amazed when the Philip, when he came, when the eunuch came out of the water, verse 39 the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Poof! He disappears. At one moment, he's in this desert place. He baptizes a man. It's like a Marvel character. Teleportation. And then in verse 40, but Philip found himself an Aztus. This is crazy. This man has just been transferred from point A to point B and he just finds himself in this new place and as he passed through, he preached. There's no what in the world? How? I don't, okay. I had to preach the gospel here. Now I preach the gospel there. If you ever wonder why someone is in your life, whether you love them or you hate them, if you wonder why you're working in such and such place, if you wonder why you're in Truckee, California, the only answer is to proclaim the glory of God and salvation to sinners who are in desperate need of salvation. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what you're about. Preach Jesus. And he kept obeying, it says, until he came to Caesarea. See, Philip was a man yielded to the Spirit. We need to be yielded to the Spirit. But there's a last point I want to share this morning before we partake in communion. I mean, Philip, at some point, his life was whatever it was before Christ. Then he became a deacon and then an evangelist. And knowing Christ, that was his story. And he started out so well. I mean, what, what, was, what was your day of salvation? What, was the coming, what did the coming months of your salvation look like? I know for many of us, we're really zealous initially. 
really excited about our faith. And at some point in time, trials and tribulation come and some of our faith gets choked out. We don't serve like we should and we lose some of the heart of an evangelist. But Philip, Philip ends well. In fact, Proverbs uh, tells us that, or rather Ecclesiastes says, better is the, the end of a thing than its beginning. How many of you are really good at starting a project but never ending your project? How many of you have undone projects at home? Ecclesiastes says to you, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And we have one last verse to cover about Philip. The concluding verse, the bookend of what we know about Philip. And it's in Acts chapter 1. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 12. I must have to preach on Acts chapter 1 soon. I keep repeating it. Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Speaking of the missionaries who've been traveling, they departed on the next day and they came to Caesarea. This is where Philip is. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. You know why this is important? Because it's easy to say, you know, we need to be in the community. And we do. We need to have a good reputation in the Tahoe Basin. And for the most part, we do. But at the end of the day, when it comes to evangelism, what Philip teaches us here at the bookend of his life is the first group of people we are to evangelize is our families. He's got four daughters, all of which who are prophesying. They know the word of God. That is what it is saying to us. Philip had a family and he had a home and he discipled his young daughters. And what's interesting, and it's lost a little bit when it says here, they were unmarried. It's translated that they were virgins. They've kept themselves pure for the work of the Lord. Philip could have had a big stage. Philip could have had a large following. But instead, he was led by the Spirit to go to some of the smallest corners of the earth And he was willing more than anything else to teach his own family who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as we close and as the worship team comes forward and the elders and the deacons come to hand out our communion this morning, may you and I not despise being a man like Philip. And I think it's a good Sunday to participate in communion as it often is and that we remember what Christ has done for us, that you yourself have participated in the communion with Christ. You've been reconciled. And I want you to visualize something because it's the same thing we do on Christmas Eve that we do with communion. As these gentlemen hand you the offering plate, it is to be a picture of themselves as they have received the gospel sharing the gospel with you. And where you're able to pass to your neighbor, you're sharing the gospel to your neighbor. And the faith continues to propagate until the whole world one day will be filled with believers and believers only. So the guys and the gals here, this is a wonderful worship team this morning, nice and full and full of breath. They're going to sing a song and the guys are going to pass out while you're singing. Hold on to it for in between songs we'll participate together and then we'll close. So please hold on to the elements, guys. Go ahead and 
and pass at this time.